Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. The title of my message, which is kind of funny, because uh, Ashley was talking about this, it's called A Seat at the Table. A Seat at the Table. How many of you have, like, family dinners every night? You sit down at the dinner table, and you eat a meal, three of you. I'm impressed. Wow. Four. Oh, you're just the church that doesn't want to raise their hand. I get it. Yeah. Like, literally, you do that every night? We have endeavored to do that. It was like, this is a big family value of ours. We're going to sit down every night. I grew up that way. We had dinner together every night, but we're going to sit down at the table and have dinner together. It was a great intention when it first started out, and the reason we probably don't do it every week is not that we don't want to do it. It's just that my stuff is everywhere, all over the kitchen table. It is our homeschool platform. It is my uh, graduate school platform. It's half my office slash workout gear slash everything, so I am to blame for this. It has nothing to do with any of my kids or my wife. But family dinners are one of those things that really kind of became a little bit of a priority, and I've realized that it's so easy just to kind of make a meal and everybody grab their stuff and go their separate ways, get on their own device, watch what they're watching, eat their food, go on about their day, and you, you kind of lose that a little bit where maybe Thanksgiving is the only time you ever actually come together as a family. But there's something about that family table that's more than just about the food, isn't it? I love when we sit together because when my family gets together, we just laugh and we talk about our day and it's just so great to be able to gather together. There's something very special about having that table and I've got one kid in college and I know that you know, the years are quickly slipping away in some ways that you're like, man, I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to all five of us be at this dinner table together, but there's something special about that family table. When we kind of began seashore, potlucks were a very important part of what we did. We love potlucks. That, that is a, I don't know if that's a, a word you use outside of church other than, it's like fellowship. Where do you ever hear the word fellowship except in church? But potlucks, and sometimes they were lucky, sometimes they weren't. It was like, you know, some weeks you have 19 bags of Doritos. Next week you have 35 pizzas. Next week, everybody brings dessert, because whatever y'all brought, that's what we eat. Um, but they were a lot of fun. And then some weeks, like if we don't do one for a while, and then we have a potluck like we do on the first Sunday of every month now on Sunday nights, it's like a gourmet feast. It's like a contest, and Sal shows up, and everybody's just like, well, there goes whatever I made so good, because Sal's got the goods. And so, but potlucks were kind of an, an, an important part of what we did. I had this friend of mine who used to have this expression that I really like. He said, food is people glue. It's people glue. It's a thing that helps stick people together. But it's actually more than just the food. It's nice to come around a good meal. But I noticed in my family that, you know, when it comes to things like Thanksgiving, there's so much work to go into it. And in the end, it's turkey. I hate to break it to you. Turkey's not that good. It's like the least flavorful bird you can eat. Why do we have turkey? A chicken. It's so much more flavorful than a turkey. Oh, my turkey's good. Don't get me wrong. But it's like all this work that goes into it. By the time you sit down at the table, you just want to take a nap. You're too tired to actually talk. But there's that everyday gathering together that really helps bond a family together. 
and really helps just remind you that you're a part of something more than just yourself. I remember sitting at this dinner table was like, I get to learn about your day. I can bring my day, but it's not just a platform for me to express myself. It's a way of growing together and, and kind of learning each other. We had, and uh, so we do potlucks once a month. It gets kind of hard now, I know, because we can't all fit in one house all the time. And we used to, when we were meeting over in town center, after church on Sunday nights, we'd go over to Wegmans and kind of take over the food court. I was like, that's a pretty good solution for a while. Then you get really tired of Wegmans food court after a while. Um, but just last week, <laughs> somebody, I think Ted was like, hey, do you guys want to go to this place called the Fish and Pig, which is a barbecue and fish place. I don't know why you put those two things together. Um, but we're like, yeah, sure. And I show up. And there was probably 35 of you guys that were there. There was like these long tables. It took like three hours to get our food, but it's not about the food. It's not about the food, right? And I just looked around and I was like, this is so cool. Like nobody organized. We didn't make an announcement and go, okay, everybody needs to go here. Just organically, people are going, hey, do you want to come to lunch? We're going here. We're going here. Didn't matter who you were. Didn't matter where you came from. Didn't matter whether we knew you or not. It's just we ended up with all these people that the only thing we had in common is we all just happened to come to church at the same time this morning, and it was so much fun. Like, honestly, it took us forever to get our food. I'm not the most patient. When, it, when I'm hungry, I wouldn't call it hangry, but it's pretty darn close to it, you know? Not as bad as some people. <laughs> but it was so much fun, I didn't even notice. I didn't even, I didn't even care. And pretty soon you notice people going from one table to another and kind of mixing it around, and it was just great fun. I wasn't paying attention to the clock. I wasn't paying attention to whether my food was there. And, and uh, anyway, I just, there's something special about that, isn't it? You know, in the ancient Near East, hospitality was actually very important. You, know, you think about these desert environments, often hospitality was a matter of life or death. If you're having to go from one town to a next, most people can't carry enough water and food to make it the whole way. And so whenever they were trying to get someplace, they would rely upon the hospitality of places along the way in order to just survive. Like we jump in our air-conditioned cars, you're like, yeah, it's 95 degrees outside, but roll up the window, turn the air conditioner on, and we got to get gas station snacks on the way, so we're good. Wherever we go, we're good, Right. But back then, it wasn't like that. Like when you showed up, if they didn't provide you water, you might die. Very important. So people welcomed strangers into their home. It was just a part of what they did. It was not uncommon. It would be uncommon to not welcome strangers into your home, regardless of where they came from. Obviously, if they're there to kind of ransack your town, that would be a different story altogether. But hospitality was kind of something that was expected. It still happens in Africa. It sure does. Any stranger would be shown hospitality with food, water, and protection so long as that person was able to give it. And some of those traditions were in the ancient Near East, but actually continued even in Jesus' day. Do you remember that moment when Jesus sends out his disciples? It was the first time that he, he breathed the Holy Spirit into them and sent them out. And what did he tell them? He said, don't take anything with you. Don't take a bag. Don't take money. Just go rely upon the hospitality of others. Now, I know often we teach that as some sort of great faith, and that's the way you're supposed to start. You're supposed to go with nothing because that's what Jesus did, live on faith. It probably has a lot less to do with living on faith, though that's part of the message, as it does understanding the culture that they lived in. 
You see, any disciple of the rabbi Jesus should be welcomed wherever they go. And if they're not, it speaks a whole lot more about the place you're going to than it does about whether you'll have enough to survive. So if you show up to a place and they don't offer you hospitality, understand it's out of the norm to not offer hospitality. So not offering hospitality is an insult. We think it would be crazy if I'm like, hey, go drive up to Richmond for the day, just knock on a stranger's house and ask if you can stay the night. That'd be a little weird, right? We're weird out, out enough about Airbnb. Somehow we came okay with that. Like we rent out other people's homes and stay in their house. Is that not weird? How did that all of a sudden not become weird? But I do it all the time. It's still a little bit weird, right? But the fact is, that's what you would do. So for them to not get hospitality actually reflects on the place that they were going to, that they're not ever going to receive the gospel anyway. So don't waste your time. Go to a place where somebody is able to receive it. Even in Luke chapter 14, Jesus describes heaven as a banquet. Isn't that interesting? In Matthew, it's the same story, but he calls it a wedding banquet. And the description he gives of heaven is not the wedding ceremony. It's the wedding banquet. It's the meal. It's the party afterwards. And he gives this illustration that there was the father set out a banquet and invited all these people to come, and they wouldn't come. And the story goes on to tell about keep going out inviting people that maybe nobody else would have invited to come to my banquet table. But Jesus is using the table, the dinner table, a banquet, as an illustration of what heaven is like. Isn't that interesting? That not everybody accepts the invitation. Now, you've got to understand the culture of the day. Romans were obsessed, I mean obsessed, with getting invited to the right dinner parties. In fact, Romans started their, their day pretty early, like just before sunrise, and they would knock off. That's an Australian expression, knock off, isn't it? They would stop working in the early afternoon, and then they would go exercise for a little bit, and the whole rest of the day is spent trying to get invited to a place for dinner. Because your status is based upon the places where you ate. So if you were a prominent person and put on a dinner, it was always about inviting somebody to your dinner who could then repay you even either by honoring you or could repay you by inviting you back to their house. So you made sure that you invited the right people because it increased your status. And if you weren't putting on a dinner, then you were doing everything you could to try to get invited to the right dinners. This was a whole culture that was designed around it that literally sometimes these Romans, half of their day was spent just trying to figure out where they were going to eat dinner. You thought it was bad on date night when you say, honey, where do you want to eat? But for the Romans, this was a real issue. Your status is based upon where you got invited to or who you had at your house. Now, when Jesus shares this story of the wedding banquet, trust me, that is a table that you'd want to be invited to. In Luke chapter 14, verse 15, somebody hears Jesus talk about this, and he goes, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. We hear that. Blessed is the one. They're going, that's the dinner party I want to be a part of. And in a culture that's obsessed with getting invited to the right tables, they understood that what he's describing is a place where you want to be. But why would Jesus use a dinner table to describe heaven? Why would he use a meal, a banquet? I think there's a whole lot of other things I would describe heaven as, but yet he chose a meal. See, it's because sitting at the Lord's table 
can also be a matter of life and death. Just like it was in the ancient Near East, being invited to this banquet was an issue of life and death. I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 24. It's a little bit of an obscure story that you may or may not know, but it actually precedes one that you do know. Moses receiving the law, the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. Most of you are familiar with that, probably from watching Charlton Heston movies. But something happened just before that. I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 24 in verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. Did you hear that? Only Moses can come near. And the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the words, all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Man, if you want to figure out how to succeed in life, how to avoid pitfalls, how to avoid burnout, how to stay focused later in life, how to have all the energy in the world, just do everything the Lord tells you to do. Not my message, but that's a pretty good one right there. So Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This was not part of what God told him to do, is it? Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses is making sacrifice on behalf of the people and he's reminding them of God's covenant with them. So then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Does that... Hang on. So... You know the picture of God on Mount Sinai? It's like the cloud. It's lightning. It's, it's fire. It's smoke and billows. And in this environment, God just goes, hang on. Let me, let me set out a table. We're going to have a potluck. What would you all bring? Brought some fun of you asked. I brought some calves. We just, sacri- we just had a barbecue. Bring it on up. That sounds like a great idea. God sets out a table. God himself and has dinner with 73 people. Not just Moses, but Moses, the other three, and seven of the elders, they all came up and had dinner with God. They sat down at His table. What an odd thing to do. Like my picture of God is like, let me bring Moses up, I'll give him the Ten Commandments. He'll tell you what to do because none of you are righteous enough to stand before me. And it's all these Moses trembling and then coming down with the 
face shining and they're just like, ah, go away, it's too bright, you know, and you, you have all those stories in the Bible of the glory of God and how it scared people and yet this is the first time we see God just goes, oh, hey guys, come on in. Hey, I, I, I made dinner. Do you, do, you, do you have plans? Did you have dinner plans? Do you, you want to you sit at my table and have dinner together? They sat and ate with God. Have you ever been invited to a dinner and you suddenly realize you, you, the manners you grew up with maybe aren't the manners of this house? And you're like, oh man, I hope I, I, hope I pick up the right fork. Oh, please don't let me do something wrong here. And you just get a little bit nervous. That's me. Can you imagine sitting down at a table with God? Why did God choose a, a meal in this moment before he gives Moses the law on Mount Sinai? You see, there's something about God's table that they need. They had come out of their enslavement in Egypt. They had spent time in the desert. They had not yet walked into the promise. There's still enemies they're going to face, and there's still enemies around them. There's the enemy of the desert. There's the enemy of those who want to take away what God's wanting to give to them. But sitting at the Lord's table means that you also have His protection. You see, as long as you're at my table, it's not just my table, my rules. It's my table, my protection. When you sit at my table, the Lord says, you got nothing to worry about. You have come under the covering of my feathers. You have come under my protection, so long as you sit at my table. Now, interestingly, God said, do not let them come near me. But Moses, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, because I look at some of the things Moses did and Abraham did, and I'm like, God, I don't get that. I don't understand how, how they knew that was in you without you having to say it. You see, God told him not to come near. But Moses so knew the heart of God, because he knew the covenant that he had made with them, that he thought, if I, if I sacrifice for their sin, if I make an atonement for their sin, God will receive them, even though he told them not to come near. How much do you have to know the heart of God that you actually do something he said not to do because you understand that the heart of God is to actually to receive his people, but without some atonement for their sin, they cannot actually draw near. You could look at that and say Moses disobeyed God, but it's not that he disobeyed him. He just knew God's right. They can't come near me in the state they're in. But because of the covenant, because of this contract I have, if there's atonement for the sin, then they can come sit at the Lord's table. And when you sit at his table, there's protection for everyone who sits at that table. And there is a place for you at the Lord's table so long as there is atonement for your sin. Now, we know now that that atonement was ultimately made through His Son, Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's a foreshadowing of what was to come. His table means protection. Maybe that gives a little bit more perspective of what Ashley shared from Psalm 23, verse 5. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that another obscure verse? Don't you think He'd say, You prepare a table before me? way behind the front lines, way off the battlefield, in a place that's safe, in a place that's protected? No. You prepare a table before me right in the presence of my enemies. Why is that? Because as long as I'm at his table, I got nothing to worry about. God will set a place for you, a table for you, 
right in the middle of your circumstance, right in the middle of the challenges that you face, God goes, I'm not pulling you out of that difficulty. I'm putting you right in the middle of it. So when you're getting chemo, I'm setting a table for you in the presence of cancer. I'm setting a table for you in the presence of divorce. I'm setting a table for you in the presence of disillusionment. I'm creating a place for you. If you sit at my table, you don't have to be taken out of the situation. You have all the protection you need for right where you are. This simple meal that God had with these 73, 74 people meant that they were under his protection. There's a guy I know, not personally, I've met him, um, but his name is Marcus Luttrell. I don't know if you've ever read the book or seen the movie Lone Survivor. So he was a part of a SEAL team. Um, Long story short, in Afghanistan, they thought that they were walking into a situation where there were maybe a dozen Taliban and ended up being like two or three hundred of them. And his little small team of SEALs got attacked. And all of them ultimately were killed um, except for, for Marcus. And the only way they survived was they literally threw themselves off of the side of a mountain and fell down a mountain. And some of those guys were so beat up after that, they weren't really able to fight very much. Um, but Marcus was able to get away. And he eventually made his way to, he got found out again. He's trying to stay like in culverts and things, trying to stay undetected while being really, really, really beat up and damaged. But he eventually gets um, discovered by some villagers, some Afghan villagers who then have to make a decision. Do we kill this American? Do we turn him over to the Taliban? Or do we bring him into our home? They made a decision to bring Marcus into their home. And they start to feed him and bandage his wounds. And for the first couple of days, I don't even think he was conscious. I don't think he was aware of what was happening. But after a little while, the Taliban come looking for him. They know there's one American that's still missing. And so they come to the home of the place where he is in the back room under the covers. And they're like, where's the American? And his father answers the door and says, there's no one here. Do you understand the risk this man took? In saying that, do you know how easy it would be? He would be the hero of his village to say, I've captured the last American. But see, even an Afghani who's not a Christian, still living under the same ancient rules of hospitality, understood that as long as he is under my roof and as long as he is at my table, he is under my protection. And Marcus today owes his life to that man. I think he since got that family out. You may know that. I'm not sure. But I know that that was, I heard that story and went, if people who are not even yet Christians understand the principle of protection at the right table, how much more do we have when we see that he has set a table before us in the presence of my enemies? That's exactly what God did for Marcus. They set a table before him in the presence of his enemies and rescued him as a result. His table means his protection. The second thing that it means, his table means you belong. God's table means that you belong. In Luke chapter 7, there's this story where Jesus gets invited to the house of a Pharisee. And often Jesus would get invited to the house of a Pharisee simply because, sometimes because they were curious and other times because they wanted to test him and they were trying to catch him in a trap. But either way, this woman, often at these um, these dinners, 
people would kind of make their way in and sit around the outside of them. Like you could just, just end up there. Just, and sometimes the important people brought their servants. And so you could kind of merge in with the servants as you come in together with them. And so this woman ends up in this room with Jesus as he's sitting in the home of a Pharisee. And as they're reclining at the table, she begins to weep and pours perfume on his feet and dries his feet with her hair and with her tears. And this Pharisee goes, he actually thinks it, doesn't even say it, he thinks it, but Jesus knows his thoughts. And he said, if, he, if Jesus really knew how sinful this woman is who was doing this, he would not let her do it. And Jesus confronts this man's bias and says, what she done will be remembered for years to come. That story is in the Bible because of what Jesus actually said. So here you have this important Pharisee inviting other important people there. How lucky Jesus is to sit at my table. That would have been the mentality. Not that he's blessed to have Jesus, but how blessed is Jesus to sit at my table? This woman was not invited. She was on the do not invite list. No way that Pharisee would have had her in the home or would have... Even if she had snuck in, she certainly wouldn't have had a seat at the table. And yet here in this place, you have the most religious people of the day and the most sinful people of the day, and yet both of them have a seat at his table. Everyone is welcome at his table, even if the host doesn't invite them. What a great picture of the kingdom. Jesus is actually living out the principle that he taught in the parable of the wedding feast. His table means you belong. That sinful woman who had been forgiven of her sins had just as much right to be there as that Pharisee did. And in fact, according to Jesus' words, she probably had a whole lot more right to be there than that Pharisee actually did. The table means you belong. I've come to realize there's some tables where I don't belong. I remember, I'll share reminding Romy of this story. When I was playing basketball in Australia, my, uh, my, 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 Coach, we were playing down in Melbourne, a different city, and after our, our walkthroughs, we had a game the next day, he goes, come on, we're going we're gonna to go have a team bonding night. We're like, all right, you know, you don't know what this is going to be, but you're going to go, he's a team bonding night, he goes, that's a surprise, we're going to go down the street and park, and all the team's like, well, I don't know what we're going to do, walk up the stairs, and as soon as we walk in, we realize the team bonding night was a strip club, and the naked girls out right away. All right, guys, team bonding night, have fun. We weren't married yet. We were just dating. And so some of the guys awkwardly would sit at the table. And I looked at that table and went, that's a table where I do not belong. And so I walked out, went downstairs, went out on the curb, picked up my my cell phone. 1999 version. I said, hey, Rummy, I just want you to know this is what just happened. And I'm here out on the curb. And I'm pretty pissed off that this was what just went on. But also, I don't want to be that guy that's not a part of the team thing. And though I was pressured to be at that table, I knew the table I didn't belong. And so I'm out here, and I'll be by myself. I don't care. And as I'm talking, I look next to me. And one of the married guys standing next to me and said, I'm so glad you walked out. I wouldn't have had the courage to do that. But when I saw you, it gave me the courage to be able to do it. Sometimes not sitting at the wrong tables 
can be just as important as sitting at the right tables. There's some tables I don't belong, but there's also some tables where I'm not welcome. Some of the tables I'd like to sit at, but I'm just not welcome. I know that many of you have been through this process too. Something about an election and a pandemic and the craziness of the world means that some of the tables where were home for me are no longer home anymore. I'm talking about family that just are so caught up in their worldview that I'm no longer welcome at their table. It's hard. It's hard to realize that you've been rejected by those who should have been showing you love and forgiveness. There's some church tables that I'm not welcome to. But you know what? I learned a long time ago to stop trying to sit at tables that Jesus would have turned over. It comes at a cost. I don't think Jesus enjoyed flipping those tables over in the temple. I think it broke his heart. But be okay with not being welcome at some tables. God's table is a family table. It's a family table. You know, each Jewish sect in Jesus' day, you had the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. They're like the four major Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> I got to find a different word for that, don't I? But they all would only eat with people of their own sect. So Essenes would only dine with Essenes. Pharisees only dined with people who shared their own strict rules. Sadducees would never eat with Pharisees, and none of them would ever eat with a Gentile. Like, that's the rule. You only ate with people who were like you. And Jesus upsets this, upsets this whole system by the invitations that he accepted. He accepts invitations to, by Pharisees, by sinners, by tax collectors, and they're like, even Gentiles. And they're like, why do you keep going to dinner at these people's houses? He upsets the whole system. And even at the Last Supper, it's one of the two instances in Scripture where Jesus goes from the guest to the host. He becomes the host. He's the host of this Last Supper. And I thought about this table, right? Because I've heard a lot of Christians, and I was, another pastor friend of mine was, or acquaintance was, was tweeting this, or not tweeting, putting this on Instagram, about getting rid of toxic people. It's true. I've heard a lot of Christians talk about getting toxic people out of their lives. It's a good principle, right? But it can't be used as an excuse to exclude people from the table of fellowship yeah. that we deem as toxic just because we don't like them. True. Because you don't like me, that doesn't make you toxic. Makes you wrong. But it doesn't make you <laughs> toxic necessarily. Because you disagree with me politically. This may shock you. Romy and I don't always agree on things politically. Mostly. But sometimes we don't. That doesn't make her toxic, right? We can't use that thinking of boundaries and toxicity to keep people away that Jesus is wanting to sit next to us at his table. 
But that's exactly what the religious people did. They only hung out with people like them. It's why in Luke chapter 14, verse 12, he says, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. (laughs) He's telling them, and they're like, well, yeah, that's why we invited them in the first place. But if they invite you back, you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Listen, Jesus even gave Judas a seat at that table at the Last Supper. Can, can I show you something as a picture here? Can we throw up that diagram? This is, a, this is my horrible drawing rendition of this um, that somebody else tried to clean up. So Da Vinci got it wrong. You know the picture of the Last Supper and they're all lined up at a table? Who would ever sit like that with everybody facing the same way? But for perspective, that picture of the Last Supper, that's why it looks that way. It's just so you can see everybody that's there. But according to the way they had Roman dinners, this was more the setup. It was kind of like, um, so the circle in the middle, the oval, that's where they would put the food. And the people would sit along rectangular tables like this. And so you could have conversation back and forth. That was the form that Rome had adopted from Greece And then the Jews had kind of adopted that same principle from the Greeks and from the Romans. Now, where you sat at this table was very important. The host, can you guys all see this? The host would always sit here. That was the place where the host would sit. The place of the most honor was right here. And so everybody else would have a seat at the table, but that's where the host would sit. That was the place of greatest honor. Now, we read in John that the disciple whom Jesus loves was leaning on the breast of Jesus, meaning he was kind of reclining next to him. By the way, these are not, um, I said tables, that's not a great way to say this. They're not actually tables, they're couches. Because when you had formal dinners, you would lay on couches on your left arm and eat with your right arm, and the food would be placed in the middle. It was like the communal thing, you tear off a piece of bread and eat it that way. Africa probably still does it that way, I don't know if India does it that way. You know, but that's kind of the way that they would eat. And so you could picture everybody leaning on the left, eating with their right. So it says the disciple whom Jesus loved was leaning on his breast. So that puts John here, right? Because if John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is leaning on him, he has, and Jesus is the host, John's got to be there. It said that Peter had to motion to John to ask Jesus a question. So we know that Peter is not in the place of honor. That probably puts Peter over here because Peter has to say, hey, He has to get John's attention. This is all in the book of John. And then it says that Jesus took the bread and he just handed it to Judas. Where does that put Judas? Jesus likely put Judas in the place of honor at his table. Judas... Judas was embezzling money from the ministry. Judas had already betrayed Jesus. He's not the hero of the story. Surely it would be Peter, James, and John right here. And Judas would be way over here, excluded. But no, he puts Judas in the place of honor. Sometimes Jesus does stuff and I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. 
But Lord, there's something here I need to get. I need to understand. Even Judas belonged at the table. Who's at your table? Who's at your table? Is it your table or is it his? You know, every time we sit down at dinner as a kid, we would say the blessing, right? Jews do the same thing. You'd say a blessing. Do you know what it does? It recognizes God's presence at our table. So it's not just my table. It's his table. And when I've invited him in, I'm not saying, hey, Jesus, would you be a guest here? We're going, hey, Jesus, this is your table. I have brought my family to your table. And when I bring my family to your table, it's a table of belonging and it's a table of protection. And I thank you, God, that we get to sit with you at your table. I want to share one more. You okay? His table means reconciliation. Reconciliation. I want to read to you a story about something called a sulha, 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 S-U-L-H-A, sulha, sulha. Am I saying that right, Sophia? S-U-L-H-A, would that be sulha, S-U-L-H-A, sulha, sulha. Let me tell you this story. A few years ago, a Messianic Jew named Ilan Zamir was driving through an Arab village in Israel. Suddenly, a figure darted out from the side of the road. Ilan slammed on his brakes too late. He had struck and killed a 13-year-old Palestinian boy. Ilan couldn't understand why the teenager had ignored the blaring horn and the screeching brakes. Later, he learned the reason. The boy was deaf. Haunted by the tragedy... Ilan was determined to make amends by seeking the family's forgiveness. Other Jews who heard of his plan thought he was crazy. An Israeli policeman even warned him, saying, Man, that's dangerous what you want to do. You can get into serious trouble. You are an Israeli Jew, and these people you want to meet are Arabs on the West Bank. The policeman was merely echoing what Ilan already knew. According to Arab tradition... The family could kill Ilan as vengeance for their son's death. But Ilan persisted, enlisting an Arab pastor who suggested he arrange, he arrange for a sulha, a meal of reconciliation. And here's how Ilan describes what happened when he sat down with the boy's family for the ceremonial meal. The cups of coffee remained on the table untouched. According to tradition, the father would be the first the father would be the first to taste from the cup as a sign that he accepted the reconciliation gesture and had indeed agreed to forgive. The tension in his face had cast a shadow on the proceedings until then. But at that point, he suddenly began to smile. The lines of grief softened. He looked at me squarely and his smile broadened as he moved towards me, opening his arms in a gesture of embrace. As we met and embraced, he kissed me ceremonially three times on each cheek. Everyone began to shake hands with one another as the father sipped coffee. The whole atmosphere was transformed. The tension at an end. But then something even more surprising happened. A spokesman for the family turned to Alan with this remarkable invitation. 
Know, oh my brother, that you are now in place of this son who has died. You have a family and home somewhere else. But know that here is your second home. What a reconciliation. A Palestinian family inviting an Israeli Jew into his own family. That's the power of the table. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, I hope you read it from the perspective of the sulha. That possibly the most important part of that whole story is that the father had a meal with his son. That meal was a meal of reconciliation, of saying, we are okay now. We are together. You have been forgiven. And this meal together is a symbol that we are now reunited. Jesus having the Last Supper was literally his fulfillment of the story that he told. He was doing what the Father was doing in that story. When Jesus reinstates Peter, for the second time, Jesus plays host instead of guests. They're out fishing. They have this miraculous catch of fish. And then when he comes back to the seashore, because Peter had denied Jesus three times, what does Jesus do? He cooks breakfast for them. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He goes, yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. But they had a meal together. Peter would have understood, I'm being reconciled as much by the words as he was by the meal. Because when you sit at the Lord's table, you belong because he has reconciled us to him and therefore reconciled us to each other. Not only was Jesus reinstating Peter back into the intimacy with him, he was also establishing back in him into the community of the disciples. I want to encourage you, when we take communion, we don't have time this morning. We'll do it next week. When we take communion together, this is God's healing of our alienation. He heals our alienation and enables us to have this ongoing daily intimacy with Him now. The idea is that we're meant to stay there forever. Seashore is a family table. This is God's table. And all are invited. All are meant to be a part of the kingdom and a part of the family. You belong. You don't just belong to seashore. You belong to God. And you are a part of His family. And so our table is just another expression of His table. It's not the table. There's not like reserve seashore only. It's all His table. The kingdom is His table. I want to encourage you. When you go to take communion next time and we do it next week, be reconciled to your brother because the table is a place of reconciliation. Don't come to a table of reconciliation without first being reconciled. Make your peace with God, but make your peace with others as well. If you know that you have something against somebody, make your peace with them. They not, may not be here. Forgive them in your heart. If they're here and you know we're doing communion, I'd encourage you, maybe go reconcile yourself before you take communion together. Today, Romy said it a couple weeks ago, I'll encourage you again, take someone to lunch. Maybe you'll need to have a sulha of your own. Don't worry about the tables you're not invited to. 
Know which tables to sit at and which ones to turn over. Your family now. You belong and you're under his protection. Can we pray? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. God, I hear of people's stories being told how at the end of church, the only way they thought they had done the right thing by serving was whether they got invited to the pastor's house that night for dinner. And if they didn't get the text message, they thought they had failed. God, forgive us. Forgive us, God. Sometimes when we've unintentionally excluded what you were trying to draw near. Forgive us, God. Thank you for preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. God, when we receive your invitation, we don't want to ignore it. Your parable said no one would come, so you had to keep going and inviting different people because you just your table was going to be full. God, we want to sit at your table. Thank you for reconciling us to you. Thank you for dividing the wall of hostility between us and others. And I pray that walls would come down, that we would be reconciled, those who have hurt us. And I keep hearing this this morning. This is for somebody. Stop rehearsing. Stop rehearsing what happened. Stop rehearsing in your mind what happened. Let it go and come sit down at the table. There's a spot for you. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.